You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Um, Well, for the sake of those who may be um, listening to this online, I'll introduce myself again. Uh, My name is Chip. Uh, and I'm one of the pastors here. I wonder um, if you've ever been a part of, of some group, maybe um, a sports team, or uh, maybe you're a campaign volunteer, or, or you're a part of an R&D team at your work, or, or maybe a planning committee, just you know, some group of people in some setting who have planned and worked and pushed together towards some goal. And then you achieve it. You win a title or, or your candidate gets elected or, or your product hits market or your event goes off seamlessly. There's this collective sense in that of joy and exhaustion and, and pride and energy that you've shared. You, you've had this experience before in some setting? Two people. Y'all need to get, be a part of something, right? Maybe you can be a part of what God's doing here. We'd like for you to experience this. But you've worked so hard, and then you did it. If you have any experience in that, even if you're not willing to acknowledge it publicly, then you know something of what it is that the people in Jerusalem were experiencing about 445 years before the birth of Christ. For 140 years, their city had laid in ruins. The people had been scattered. Their sense of self and of identity, um, spiritual identity, uh, identity as a people, their security was just barely hanging on. But then over the previous 52 days in this rush of community pride and bold leadership and God-given vision and resources, The walls around the city of Jerusalem had been restored. The preaching of the law had been restored. The service in the temple had been restored. They had worked hard under the threat of attack to the neglect of their own personal responsibilities at home, sometimes at great personal expense, but they had done it. And now there's this collective, <clears throat> excuse me, this collective citywide, really regionwide rejoicing that breaks out over what it is that they have done. It's recorded in Nehemiah 9.38 all the way through 12.27. Let's start near the end. Nehemiah 12, 43, and I'm starting near the end because this verse serves as something like a summary of the entire section that runs from 938 through 1247. So here's what it says in Nehemiah 12, 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. 
The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They offered great sacrifices to God, and they received great joy from God. Here's the way I've worded this biblical truth in your notes. For the people of God, there is great joy in great sacrifice. This is what we see in these three chapters. For the people of God, there is great joy in great sacrifice. I see it four different ways in the text, four types of great sacrifices that the people offered to the Lord and from which they experienced a great joy from the Lord, four types of sacrifices that I'm going to argue the people of God today should still be offering to the Lord and from which the people of God should still be deriving great joy today. The first one is this. It's the sacrifice of faithfulness. Sacrifice of faithfulness. If you look at Nehemiah 9.38, and so I don't know, some of you may be relatively new um, to exploring the Bible. Uh, We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, those were added later. And they were just added as a help to us because it's just easier for me to be able to say Nehemiah 9.38 than it is to, you know, try to get you to randomly flip through pages. But the chapter and verse numbers aren't inspired. They're, They're just like helpful row marks. And every now and then, They're just in an awkward spot. And I think this is an awkward spot. I think Nehemiah 9.38 should be Nehemiah 10.1. And so that's why I'm going to start with 9.38 because I think it should start the chapter. So it says this. Because of all of this, we, this is the people in Jerusalem, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of all of this, because of all that God had done, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, I don't do this really often, but I think that it's helpful for you here to know the word that's translated covenant. Because Andy talked last week in the sermon a good bit about covenant. If you listened to that or if you were here, then you may remember that what he said was that in a covenant that God established the covenant, not us. That we didn't negotiate the terms of the covenant. God just said, this is the covenant. And so if you heard that, and then you get to Nehemiah 9.38, and it might sound a little confusing because you feel like, well, um, Pastor Andy just said last week that, that we don't make a covenant, and yet here it says the people are making the covenant. And so it's helpful just to see the word behind that that's being translated because the normal word for covenant that is used throughout the scripture is amanah, but here the word that Nehemiah uses is berit. We made a firm berit, which means closer to something like um, a commitment to be faithful. So they weren't making terms of a covenant. They were making a firm commitment to be faithful to the terms of the covenant that God had already established with Israel generations before. You with me? 
It's, this, we're making a, a firm commitment here to be faithful to the terms of the covenant. And what follows in Nehemiah chapter 10 is a summary of, first of all, who it was that made the firm commitment to faithfulness. So in verses 1 through 27, the nobles are listed. In verses 28 and 29, it adds that the rest of the people join with their brothers the nobles. So it tells you who entered into this commitment to be faithful. And then it says what that commitment to faithfulness looked like. In verse 29, it's a commitment to obey God's law personally, knowing that that meant less freedom to kind of indulge in or engage in certain activities. In verse 30, it's a commitment to religious purity and a rejection of the idolatry that inevitably had come with intermarriage, knowing that even as they did that, it meant fewer potential spouses for their children at a time when marriage was the number one factor in long-term security, especially for young women. In verse 31, there's a renewed commitment to keeping the Sabbath even though, and it's explicit if you look there, they knew that that meant they were going to lose some economic opportunities. So there was an opportunity cost to not being open on Sunday. And they knew that. Their faithfulness required sacrifice. And friends, yours will too. If you are committed to a life of faithfulness to God, there will be sacrifice involved. There's going to be, well, there are going to be experiences that you want to have that God has forbidden. That there will be experiences you don't want to have, risks that you don't want to take, places that you don't want to go, into which God is calling you. And if you're going to be faithful, you're going to have to go do those things or go to those places. There will be moments or seasons where you're misunderstood or mocked or even ostracized because you're refusing to compromise. You are committed to being faithful. There will be time that you have to give up, opportunities that you have to let pass by, relationships that you might lose because you have made a firm commitment to be faithful, to obey God's commandments, to submit to his will, and to follow his son. Faithfulness to God always requires sacrifice. Sometimes I think in our well-meaning attempts to make God accessible, we can unintentionally communicate that following him is easy. But it's not. Jesus likens it to daily crucifixion. Jesus likens following him. um, he, He talks about following him in terms of denying yourself, in terms of dying to yourself, in terms of seeking nothing and loving no one more than him and his kingdom. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is 
wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now he balances that because he says you only need the faith of a mustard seed to start walking that hard road. He, he balances it. He says, I'm going to put this yoke on you, but it's going to be light and easy. But it has to be his yoke, not yours. It has to be his terms, not yours. And that is the sacrifice of faithfulness. Second great sacrifice we see here that leads the people to experience great joy is the sacrifice of generosity. Sacrifice of generosity. As verse 32 begins, the people's commitment was to, they they say, we take on ourselves the obligation to give for the service of the house of our God. We're, we're taking that on us, they say. The temple, and this is covered in the book of Ezra more than Nehemiah, but the temple had been abandoned and, and in, in disarray for generations. And they say, that's not happening anymore. We're going to take this on ourselves. And so they gave, if you begin reading there, verses 32 through 39, they gave to supply the temple. They gave to fund the religious feasts and festivals to provide the literal sacrificial offerings that needed to be a part of the temple service and to compensate the priests and the Levites. And they they vow again down in verse 39, kind of the bookend on it. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And it's not a one-time thing. They're not caught up in the emotion of what it is that they've done completing the wall around the city in 52 days. And so they're not having this kind of collective moment of generosity. They committed to give regularly in verse 33. And they committed to give the first and the best of what they had in verses 35 and 37. And if you've been with us through this study, you may recall that back in chapter 5, some of these people were selling their children into slavery to buy food. Their sacrifice, their generosity was sacrificial. They felt this. And they said, we're committed to that. To sacrificial generosity. And I know that this subject can sometimes be a sensitive one in our day. But the consistent, clear biblical teaching is that the people of God are called to sacrificial generosity for the mission of God. You just can't get around it. The first act of sacrificial generosity that we see in the scriptures in Genesis 4. Like it comes early. You just cannot read through the scriptures and get away from this idea. And so I, I understand, like it's just part of my job. To, like we can't just skip these seven verses. And so I know, I'm aware pastorally, 
that not everyone in the room is a Christian. And if you're not a Christian yet, well, this doesn't apply to you yet. But you should know going in that um, if you receive the free offer of salvation that God has given you in Christ and you commit yourself to following him, sacrificial generosity is part of what he expects. So you should just know that going in. Now, also understand that there are some in our church family who are struggling. Like, I'm aware that what's going on with inflation, job changes, job losses. We've had this weird ripple of job loss in our church over about the last six or eight weeks. There are folks dealing with radically unforeseen circumstances in your life where you find yourself in a season where you're relying on the generosity of others. And so for you in the place where you are, you know, sacrificial generosity might be a few dollars a month, if that. But, but the reality is that's not everyone. So if you're a Christian and God is providing for your needs, then there is a sacrifice of generosity that he expects you will give. More than that, that he commands that you will give to further the work of the church and the mission of the kingdom. And so the reality is that we live in a relatively, relatively affluent part of a relatively affluent city in a relatively affluent country in a relatively affluent time in the history of humanity. I mean, most of the people who've lived on the planet in the history of the world didn't walk in nearly what we walk in. And, and so that's just reality. And, and again, I, I'm just painfully aware of inflation and, and tax changes. And like, I, I get it. I, I do. But like beer and wine sales aren't down, y'all. People still going on vacation. Home sales are still clipping along. And, and so, you know, for many, many people, like, things are doing pretty well. And if that's you, you should quite literally praise God for his provision in your life. There is no guilt in having nice things. Right? God has given us nice things. There, there's no shame in doing fun things. We had a great time yesterday. My family and I went up to Clemson and saw my daughter. It was her birthday yesterday. Like, I don't feel any guilt over that. We, we had a good time. It, it was fun. There's no shame in saving for the future. Praise God for those things. And do not neglect the house of our God. Both can be true. So you've heard me share this data um, with you before, but if you take the average per capita income in um, 294-9266 and 64, and you just look at the number of adults who call King's Cross home, if the average person in our church was tithing on their income, our budget would go up about 50%, five-zero. Actually, a little more than that. And, and hear me, like, I don't say that to guilt or shame anyone. The people in this church have been, have always been, very generous. If you're brand new, you should know God has done miraculous things, literally, in the life of our church through the generosity of our people. It is stunning to me the way that God's grace has overflown in the life of King's Cross. But, so, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying, though, is that I just want to encourage you that if you're someone who's not yet established the spiritual discipline of generosity, or if you're someone maybe who's new to the faith or you're 
spiritually rather young in your faith, and you just know, you know, if you were honest, this is an area where you need to grow or where you're still in the process of growing, be encouraged to, to keep at that and to pursue that because the plain and obvious application of Nehemiah 10, 32 to 39 is that the people of God are expected to offer a sacrifice of generosity to the work of God. That's the clear application of the text. The third, I think this is more subtle, but it's a sacrifice that's recorded by Nehemiah that I've termed in your notes a sacrifice of calling. The sacrifice of calling. <clears throat> so the walls of Jerusalem had been restored under Nehemiah's leadership. <clears throat> but the city itself is still pretty largely deserted. So chapter 11 begins with an outline of a plan to repopulate the city. Nehemiah 11, 1 and 2 says this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. They like stayed out in the suburbs. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret that. It almost sounds like there were some people who got chosen and sent and they weren't real happy about it. And then there were some people who raised their hand and people gave them a lot of praise. I don't know exactly what the situation is there, but this is what's happening. And that's a sacrifice, right? To, to be willing to leave behind your town, to leave behind your, your farm or your trade, where it's established, your relational network, and move back into a city that's been fairly beat up for over a hundred years and try to help to restore that city into a place of, of being safe and prosperous and a thriving testimony to the grace of God again, which is the reason that Jerusalem had been established, it was to be a testimony to God. In today's language, if we were praying over someone who was going to a city to do that. We would say they felt called to go. That, that's the language that, that we would use. If you keep going in chapter 11 and into chapter 12, what you'll see is that there is yet another long list of names. And if you've been studying through the book with us, this is the third one. And you, we can understand if you might say, like, what's this dude's deal with names, man? Like, there's just name after name after name. Why, why? Like, Nehemiah is obsessed with the phone book. What is the deal? But they're organized differently. And so in chapter 3, the names are organized geographically. It tells you who is doing what at various places around the city reconstructing the wall. In chapter 7, there's a list, but it's organized genealogically. Nehemiah was reestablishing who had a legitimate claim to the city and to the land around the city. And here in chapters 11 and 12, the list is organized by vocational calling, by what people did. And so, if you read through it later this afternoon, this week maybe in your quiet time, what you'll see is that the names are given of the chiefs, of the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the overseers, the singers, and the villagers. And they're in paragraphs. 
So it'll say, and the Levites, and they give you a big name, and the overseers, and it's organized by what they do. So why would Nehemiah put 62 verses of job descriptions in the middle of a passage about great sacrifice that led to great joy? Why would he do that? I think it's because there is a very real element of sacrifice in our vocational calling. And it brought those people joy to do those things. When I use the word vocational calling, by, by vocation, I'm using that term broadly. So it might, your vocation might be a paid job, but it might not be. Your vocation might be as a student or as a stay-at-home mom, or as a retiree. So when Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, that Christians should present themselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice, that includes what it is that you do with the majority of your time Monday through Friday. It includes your vocational calling. Because all of life is sacred to God. There's no sphere of your life about which God is apathetic. And so we know, especially if you've been in church for a while, we could rattle off, oh, God really cares about our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We hear um, Jesus and others talk about that. We love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes and amen. It's the greatest commandment. But he also cares about your marriage and your health, your sex life, your finances, your leisure time, your friendships, the influence that you have in different spheres of your life. He cares about what you do, not just in this time, but in all of your time. Work, all work, is sacred to God. Work existed in the Garden of Eden before sin. Jesus did not recruit 12 religious professionals like me to be his apostles. Recruited fishermen, tax collectors, and political activists. Those were his guys. So look, if you're a homeschooling parent, that work matters every bit as much as somebody who's doing a PhD in research at some institution. If you're an attorney... That work matters every bit as much as someone who's doing Christian counseling. If you're a landscaper, that work matters every bit as much as somebody who's a missionary. God has given you, every single one of you, God has given certain gifts and passions and, and skills and opportunities, and the collective set of those is unique to you. And so when you use those good gifts that God has given you, you should think of them as acts of worship, as a sacrifice of calling, working as to the Lord. The question is not whether your vocational calling matters to God. The answer to that is yes, it does. The question is, do you see what you do as an act of sacrificial service to God? And if so, how does that change how you approach it? 
So like, what if this week, like what if new challenges or new opportunities that you had, you looked at through this lens? What, what if the same ordinary tasks that you've been doing for six months or 60 years, if you looked at them through this lens, how would believing that what you do with the majority of your time really mattered? Not just because you get a paycheck from it or because it's fun or, or because there's some prestige involved in it or because, you know, like whatever other benefit there may be. But what if you believed that what you did with the majority of your time doing the re- during the week really mattered to God? How would it change your approach to it? How would it change the way you think and you feel during the week? And so, yes, we, we might think about faithfully following God's commands or giving sacrificially. We may think of those things as sacrifices because we're giving something up. Well, I'm, I'm not doing this thing. I'm giving away some of my resources. That's a real sacrifice. But in the biblical sense, my vocational calling as a pastor is a daily sacrifice that I make to the Lord. And whatever you do should be too. It's just a matter of whether you're intentional or not to see it that way because God cares about it. Otherwise, Why is the Holy Spirit inspiring Nehemiah and allowing the church to preserve 62 verses of lists of people who did certain jobs if it didn't matter to him? And they are people like you. They're just some people who happened to live in Jerusalem 500 years before Jesus was born. They could just have easily just so happened to live east of the Cooper in Charleston 2,000 years after. That there's an element of sacrifice in your vocational calling. One more. This sacrifice is more obvious, I think. Towards the end of chapter 12, it's a sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of praise. From 1227 through the end of the chapter... Nehemiah records the dedication ceremony of the wall and the restoration of the service at the temple. It says this in 1227. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. Then in verse 31, it says there were two great choirs that they dispersed in different places around the city to kind of symbolically encircle the city with praise. Verse 43, which is where we began. I'm going to read it again. Nehemiah says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Down in verse 46, he said, There were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. The sacrifices of the people weren't just grains and cereals and burnt offerings at the temple. Their sacrifices were also a commitment 
to live faithfully according to God's law, to giving generously to fuel God's mission, to carrying out their individual callings day in and day out in a way that honored God. And the praise of the people was in and of itself a sacrifice to God. I think perhaps it may be the aspect of our worship that we've most lost in the 2,000 years since Jesus' ascension. And in, in some ways, on one hand, that makes a lot of sense. Because the reason that Christians make such a big deal out of the crucifixion of Jesus is because on the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14 says it this way. It says, By God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, like the ones Nehemiah lists in chapters 11 and 12, stands daily at his service, like the service described in Nehemiah 12, 44 to 47, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. More succinctly in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So you've ever wondered why Jesus had to die? It's because without a sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Someone is going to die for your sin. Is either Jesus once on a cross outside of Jerusalem or you forever in hell? One of those two things is going to be true. So we no longer have to make literal sacrifices on an altar because the sufficient sacrifice of the Son of God has been made once for all. So on that hand... You could understand why sacrifice has become less a part of the corporate worship of God's gathered people. But on the other hand, it's an error to think that our worship shouldn't involve any other kinds of sacrifice. Because it should. The principle is still there. This is why I would suggest if you're in town and not sick, you should be at worship. Because it's a sacrifice of your time. Even if you're tired, even if it's football season, even if the weather is nice. One time I was talking to someone and encouraging them to attend church, and they said, I'm just not going to do that. I really love brunch. (laughs) You won't sacrifice brunch for God? Okay. I talked to another person one time. They said, you know, um, I go really hard Monday through Friday. And on Saturday, I've got a list of things that I just have to get done. 
I mow the yard and we do this. Sunday's the only day I have to relax. Okay. So Monday through Saturday is about you and your productivity and your earning potential and your to-do list. And then Sunday's about you. Uh, who you worship's real clear. It's you. You understand that when Israel was told to bring sacrifices, they weren't allowed to bring like the lambs who had a crippled leg. That they couldn't bring the, the bad grain at the bottom of the silo that had gotten filled with bugs and mold. They had to bring their best and their first. So I would suggest to you that the greatest commodity in our culture is no longer sheep or grain. It's time. And it is the thing that people are least likely to want to sacrifice. I would suggest to you that there is a sacrifice of praise in the commitment to being a part of a gathered worship service at this or another gospel preaching local church. This is why I would suggest that you shouldn't look for a perfect church. First of all, there aren't any. If you're here because you didn't like your last church and you're hoping we're going to be perfect, we won't be. We're probably at least as bad as they were. And eventually you'll get tired of us and you'll go somewhere else. But what I would suggest is you should sacrifice some of your preferences. That's a sacrifice of praise to God. This is why you should serve. Because Sundays aren't about you. And if Jesus could humble himself and come not to be served but to serve, you can. And that's a sacrifice of praise. Friends, I would suggest this is why you should sing loud as a sacrifice of praise to God. This is why you should be willing to cry if tears well up in your eyes during a sermon or during a song. Don't hold that back. God made you to be an emotional person. This is why you should be willing to pray. If you feel so led, get down on your knees and turn around and face your chair and pray. It's a sacrifice of praise to your God. That's why you should model this for your children. You all know we go from birth to fourth grade on Sunday mornings here. And so our middle school and high schoolers are in here with us. Parents, I would say especially dads, you should model a sacrifice of praise for your children. And show them, like, if your wife and children are in this service, men, you should lead out in modeling a sacrifice of praise. And if you don't have a wife or a child in the service with you, model it for the person next to you. Because I assure you that when you stand before the Lord Jesus one day to give an account for your life, he is not going to say, you know, you were like boldly off key. <laughs> it was really embarrassing to me and the Spirit and the Father. We, they like almost sent me back early to get y'all. That's not going to happen. Offer a sacrifice of praise to God the Father. That's why you should invite people who are close to you but far from God to come. And say, well, that makes me nervous. Well, sacrifice your comfort. Well, what if I get embarrassed? Well, sacrifice your pride. What aren't you willing to sacrifice for God? Offer it to him as a sacrifice of praise. Because the praise is of God's people are sacred to him. You know, Revelation 5, 8 says that in the throne room of heaven, around the throne room of God right now, there are golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers 
of the saints. The aroma of the throne room of God is the praises of his people. That is a sacrifice that he is worthy of. And every time you pray, every time you sing, every time you respond to the word of God, every time you celebrate communion as we're about to do, every time you rejoice in baptism, whether we are gathered here together or you're worshiping somewhere on your own, that is a sacrifice of praise to our God. This is a firm commitment of the Israelites in 445 B.C., This is the firm commitment that you and I should make today as we reflect on Nehemiah 10 through 12, to live faithfully, to give generously, to work out our callings intentionally, and to praise abundantly. When we do that, these great sacrifices that we make to God should lead us to experience a great joy from God. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here as your people. Pray that if there are some here who are not yet your people, even now your spirit might open their eyes and cause them to believe for the first time that they might become counted as your people. We praise you. We have praised you in song and in prayers and in fellowship and in the preaching and the receiving of the word. And we continue to praise you this morning. May our sacrifice be one that honors you, even as we remember the ultimate sacrifice that was paid by our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.